Hello, my name is Zahar Karetsky and this is the Transitions Visions podcast, a podcast series about and for the sustainability transitions community. In this month's episode, I talked with Jonas Torrens, who is an assistant professor at the Copernicus Institute of Sustainable Development. Jonas is the kind of person after every conversation with whom you feel you have learned a valuable insight. And we talked about a whole range of things, um, among which I will probably flag some solid advice for PhD students in transition studies, uh, especially for those who might feel uncomfortable with how interdisciplinary and uh, transdisciplinary transition, transition studies are. So we talked about the borders between disciplines and what kind of disciplining these borders enforce and what might be done about them. In this discussion about belonging in transition studies, we also talked about other ways of belonging and also not belonging. And this was actually the topic of Jonas's uh, blog post on medium.com, which has inspired this uh, entire conversation that I had with him. Jonas was generous to share with me also about his professional journey into transition studies and the adjacent transformation studies. So an all-round rich discussion. Uh, which I invite you very much to enjoy. And apologies that in the actual interview I talk a bit quick in this one. Um, I promise I will improve next time. Please enjoy. So I'm here with uh, Jonas Torrens, assistant professor in transition studies, right, in, from Copernicus Institute of Sustainable Development. It's very nice to have you. Um, and sort of our meeting was triggered by your uh, reflexive and very kind of introspective uh, piece on medium.com. Um, so I thought it would be very cool to, uh, to have a chat uh, also. Maybe we could start with that because you're uh, in both transitions and transformations in those two adjacent fields. Could you maybe say a few things about transformations uh, as a field? Yeah, for sure. Thank you, Zahar, for uh, having me. It's a pleasure, and it's really nice to, to have a chat with you again after working together for, for a period. Um, yeah, I think the many people in our area have come across these two terms and um, there's been quite a few papers published about the distant differences between transitions and transformations and um, it's uh, I don't think I can give a, a comprehensive response to the kind of core differences but one of the key differences you if you want is uh, how do you perceive the kind of core uh, scope of change that is happening. Um, so transition studies tends to assume that uh, the kind of uh, focus for uh, change is at the level of uh, social technical systems and the uh, institutional regimes that help guide their development, uh, particularly related to, of course, the multilevel perspective that is familiar to many people. And so there is a, a kind of tendency to frame 
the issues uh, around sustainability as persistent issues in particular societal systems mm -hmm. like uh, energy provision, water provision, and so forth. Uh, and that focus comes with certain advantages and certain disadvantages, and of course, uh, we can see by the variety and, and depth of the research that there is a lot to, to, to do and to say about uh, these more sectoral or uh, uh, social technical systems transitions. Uh, however, the field of transformations uh, opens up the possibility and discusses the possibility that the depth at which the change is happening and has to happen in society to, to address sustainability, that it could be happening at, um, at the level of other uh, functions or other aspects of society. So things like values, things like fundamental relationships between uh, how society and, and uh, nature or um, things such as uh, patriarchy or colonialism and so forth. And so there is an attention to some of these deeper uh, structures, if you want, um, that, that are structuring a variety of systems uh, that are structuring a variety of relationships in society. Um, I always found it useful to kind of situate myself a little bit at the interface between them. And one example of that has been working together with colleagues at the Urban Transitions and Transformations, mm. um, the MATA group at the uh, Sustainability Transitions Research Network. I do, th I do feel that the differences between the fields can be sometimes overstated. Mm. Uh, and there is nowadays quite a lot of cross-pollination and people are interested in drawing from uh, both of these approaches to, to systemic change to mm -hmm. think a little bit more deeply about what needs to change and how, how deeply. A, a good example of that is, for example, deep transitions, uh, as some of you may know, uh, that is talking about these deep, these changes that affect a variety of social technical systems at once. And that comes closer to some of these conversations about transformations, for example. But these terms, as anything in academia, are used quite loosely, so mm -hmm. it's, it's important not to overstate and to be really curious mm -hmm. about how a particular study is framing and, and approaching the question of uh, conceptualizing systemic change. Mm -hmm. And now in your work, uh, you are st uh, in the same way uh, engaging with both. Uh, I would say so. Uh, I, I do tend to attend mostly the conferences related to mm -hmm. the sustainability transitions research mm -hmm. uh, network still. Uh, but for many years, I have been reading uh, of authors that, that publish primarily in uh, conferences such as the Earth System Governance or the Transformations Conference. So there is slightly different meetings and places where these conversations are happening. Uh, and there is uh, quite a few researchers that are aware of the, the kind of richness of both traditions. Mm -hmm. Okay, so then when we, in, in, when we now continue to talk about traditions and transformations as a field, we can assume that they are more or less uh, talking about the same uh, processes. I wouldn't necessarily say that they're the same, but there are certainly two academic communities that have some overlap, mm -hmm. uh, that have certain kind of shared interests, they have different ways of going about those interests. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you think in terms of shared interest on systemic change, uh, but the methodologies, the approaches, the, the levels of analysis are quite different and the theoretical frameworks that are used, for example, tend to be quite different. Um, but I, I'm I always found the dialogue between them to be much richer and, and uh, um, 
I think it's a pity to to really try and keep them as as very separate. But I don't think it's just a question of trying to merge them either. It's about mm -hmm. a kind of productive dialogue between these different ways of seeing. Yeah, but so both of these are uh, interdisciplinary, right? Absolutely, mm -hmm. transdisciplinary. You could say. Transdisciplinary. Yeah. Um, and coming back to your uh, piece in on, on medium.com, you were talking a lot about values and and uh, uh, a feeling of belonging and cosmopolitan values and I wonder how um, how many uh, how, well of course it, it relates a lot with uh, uh, if when you're a transition scholar transformation scholar uh, it it makes sense that you also adopt uh, the, oh, oh, your are such a scholar because you have uh, you value um, uh, these more uh, sort of cosmopolitan uh, uh, yeah, values as opposed to uh, the, 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 the recent uh, sort of a trajectory as we have seen in the recent Dutch elections, uh, a, bit, a bit of going, going uh, looking introspectively na nationally. Uh, so I wonder uh, the connection between cosmopolitan values and, and research and uh, have they been particularly useful uh, in one way or another in some disciplines as opposed to other disciplines? Um, yeah, it's very interesting. So I think perhaps to situate uh, a little bit of conversation, um, cosmopolitanism has a very long history philo philosophically, and uh, I'm not a philosopher nor a historian, but um, I think it's important to, to engage with it with this sort of general idea of the possibility of thinking about citizenship and, and belonging as belonging to kind of a, a wider unit like the cosmos, for example. So cosmopolitan, so a citizen of the cosmos. Um, and it might be, it sounds a little fanciful, but it, it departs from a deep recognition of the ways in which humans of all kinds share concerns, share uh, uh, certain, uh, the, if you want, the human condition or, or issues around how to be human that, that touch on, on people from all sorts of nationalities and places. And, mm -hmm. uh, and it's almost a, a call for uh, an attention and solidarity to, to a wider way of being human that is not mm -hmm. subdivided and, and so uh, concerned with the, the divisions that have emerged historically, for example, around uh, the 18th century in many places or around the 1500s, as it was the case of Brazil. So this idea that rather than overemphasizing the, the, the diversity and the, the separateness of different peoples in different places of the world, that there is a possibility of thinking of uh, humanity more collectively. In the context of sustainability, it's important to, to marry that with, uh, and I've been just recently kind of engaging a little bit more with ideas that um, pay attention to the ways in which uh, modernity has been um, emerging as almost as a kind of overriding attempt to, to create this universalizing ideas of what it is to be human, uh, what it is to, to be rational, what it mm -hmm. is to be um, engaged in economy and so forth. So uh, a lot of the sustainability concerns that we have, that, that we share, they speak to the need of challenging some of these universalizing ideas. Mm -hmm. uh, and so cosmopolitanism in the context of sustainability, it's important to not see it as, as just a, this we're all the same and therefore like a raising of differences, but it's more of a, like a deep tolerance to differences and a deep, deep engagement with mm. 
those different ways of seeing and the richness that they bring. Um, so I, I find this particularly interesting because for me, the, the kind of closest that I've, I've come to articulate that for myself is around the idea of ontological multiplicity. Because mm. someone that has lived in many different places, I have come to see um, very different ways of being in the world uh, that are, you know, historically and societally constructed. Um, and so to recognize that we're not just one and the same, we're not homogeneous, but yet that there is a, a possibility of, of a shared belonging, a shared uh, concern around uh, constructing sort of a decent life for everyone, for example. Um, so uh, ideas that come from uh, scholars such as Arturo Escobar around the, the pluriverse and, and others uh, speak to the need to decolonize and, and rem uh, challenge some of that universalizing language that, that is uh, prevalent in, in modernity and uh, modernist thinking. And when it comes to sustainability, it's quite important. And you know, scholars like Andy Sterling uh, that have published both on transitions and transformations have done a lot to, to talk about the, the need for emphasizing plurality, for emphasizing difference, and uh, for thinking about the processes by which uh, we come together as, as different, you know, mm -hmm. and, and are able to explore and articulate what uh, different criteria for, for what is or not sustainable, um, different ideas of progress, different ideas of, of benefit, uh, rather than assuming that we know what progress is and it's just about getting people on board or assuming that uh, each country will just you know, decide by itself what progress is and then go about it. Um, so it's a sort of recognition of the, the shared uh, plurality uh, and uh, the search for kind of a, a, a bigger canvas on which to, to look at these questions. Feel free to unpack any of that. Yeah, <laughs> good luck with that. Maybe I'll, uh, I will approach it uh, from, from a bit of an angle, uh, from a more of a personal angle, because uh, yep. uh, so you, you um, because of your piece as well. Uh, um, interdisciplinary, so, so, and transdisciplinary scholarship. Um, have you yourself been always been a, an interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary scholar? Yeah, I think my interest in inter and transdisciplinarity is in part a kind of outcome of my upbringing, to be honest, because mm. I grew up in a, in a household uh, with uh, a sociologist uh, masters who, who re ended up doing his mm -hmm. PhD at the same time as me, and a historian uh, mom, mm -hmm. uh, and I was very interested in technology. So there was a kind of clear recognition from early on that um, there was a possibility of thinking about dialoguing across different ways of knowing and different you know, academic communities, for example. Uh, and my, I, I can attribute to my mom a kind of deep interest into that as, as she was coordinating like a high school pedagogics and, and thinking a lot about how to implement some of that at uh, the school environment. So uh, things around you know, the writings of Friedrich Capra and others. Uh, so this understanding, for example, of the potential of uh, concepts around complexity, for example, being integrators mm -hmm. that allow for different disciplines to, to find themselves in dialogue. Um, and I'm also um, 
I've studied engineering at first, for of all things, because I wanted to have these practical contributions to you know the, the environmental challenges we had, and I thought the technology was the best way to do that. Uh, and in in many of these areas, engineering, for example, it's impossible to not think about uh, some degree of interdisciplinarity. There are aspect, mm -hmm. there are things that comes from physics, there are things that comes from from chemistry. The the natural sciences don't stay separate in the world. Like the phenomena don't respect the, the separation of the sciences, right? And uh, so this recognition of there, there being spaces where these different things need to come together uh, has always been there. Uh, and as, as, as I developed and followed my academic career, uh, my interest shifted over time and led me more and more into spaces off if you want inter and transdisciplinary integration where there was an attempt of mobilizing knowledges from different academic communities to respond to specific societal challenges. So the inter and transdisciplinarity was not a, a concern in and of itself, but it was more a response to, to the object of, of interest that I had. Mm -hmm. So because I was interested in you know, uh, sustainability, I couldn't but uh, try to learn from different things. And around the time of my master's, I was working at the Stockholm Resilience Center um, in Stockholm. And I was very lucky to work with um, Dr. Sarah Cornell, who, who was an interdisciplinarian and a, a very uh, polymathic one in that sense, um, who was uh, deeply steeped in questions of both natural sciences and uh, uh, social sciences. Uh, and who had done quite a lot of reading and, and work on philosophy of sciences, and, and that sort of rubbed rubbed off a little, and that I became interested in things like critical realism and other mm -hmm. theories around that time. So um, I think it's a sort of serendipitous encounter with it, more than being interested just because. Uh, and I, I see uh, sometimes, yeah. I have this question of interdisciplinarity and transdisciplinarity for what? Mm -hmm. uh, is it just an academic exercise of coming together mm -hmm. or there is a kind of purpose? And, and both of those uh, ways of thinking about um, research speak to the need for doing interdisciplinary research or transdisciplinary research uh, as a sort of recognition of the complexity of the world, right? The, the world is complex and that demands different perspectives to come together. Uh, and I think that sort of more pragmatic way of approaching mm -hmm. it is, is something that mm -hmm. I, I find really useful. So you feel, uh, in, in a way, there's a theme of uh, 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 being in between uh, geographically, but for you, but also mm -hmm. uh, because you come from Brazil, right? And also between the quote unquote disciplines um, or across them, trans. Uh, um, I can imagine that's a lot of transition studies PhDs could not be comfortable with with the high inter sort of the lack of clear disciplinary um, silos that they mm. they expect from they see from other fields and the more established larger fields will be what would be maybe your advice for those people yeah, it's, a, it's a great question um, there is this, this issue of how do we explore this sort of open-ended transdisciplinary or interdisciplinary context without losing oneself. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> and I don't think I, I had a very sophisticated account of how to do that when I first started my PhD and I, and I had to grapple a little bit. 
with reading all sorts of research fields and, and finding where which influences felt most resonant or like which ones most spoke to the issues that I was working with. Um, so at first I think I, I got lost, but in getting lost, sometimes you find really important things. Mm. Um, and I was, I was lucky to do a PhD at the Science Policy Research Unit, which is a, an environment like they would describe themselves as a broad tent where you know, a variety of uh, disciplines and, and backgrounds come together. And, and most people have very uh, serendipitous ways of arriving at that place uh, at the University of Sussex in Brighton. And so I was lucky to be in an environment that encouraged, to some extent, uh, that sort of autonomy to, to explore and to find oneself within different academic communities and not have to over-identify upfront with any one particular community. So not say, I am an economist, therefore I only think in economic terms, um, but to have a more uh, sort of curiosity-driven or you know, purpose-driven uh, engagement. So you engage with the, the literatures that speak to to the to your um, problem. Mm -hmm. So I, I was very lucky to be in a place that encouraged that sort of problem-driven way of engaging with with research. Um, nowadays, um, I do. I, I'm currently teaching a course on uh, interdisciplinary competences uh, called Spark. Um, and we base ourselves and frame a lot of the activities around a set of uh, competences that have been developed by Utrecht University around um, basically competences for interdisciplinary research. And we focus on four of them that I think will be useful for anyone starting a PhD to be familiar with. First of all is this idea of disciplinary grounding. So it's not necessarily to um, kind of start not having any knowledge, right? We often come mm. from, a, from a particular tradition, we come from a, a certain way of understanding the world, and it's important that we become aware of what that tradition is, mm. uh, what are some of the assumptions, what are some of the specificities of that way of knowing, right? So by the time you're starting a PhD, you've already done a master's, you've already uh, done quite a lot of uh, reading and, and researching. Um, so disciplinary grounding helps uh, one be aware of where they're coming from uh, but also what, are, what is there, like what can they draw from, right? So it's very problematic, for example, from someone that is in transition studies that is not familiar with the strands of literature that contributed, mm -hmm. that, that built up transition studies, that made transition studies what it is today. So disciplinary grounding would be almost an invitation to kind of go into that deeper intellectual history to understand where things are coming from. And then second, um, we have this idea of um, perspective taking. Mm -hmm. So the ability of recognizing the, how different actors or different uh, academic communities perceive a certain issue, right? So that you can engage with a variety of pers perspectives. Mm -hmm. Not trying to merge them immediately, but trying to see the, the distinctions. We often use this metaphor of lenses to talk about academic mm -hmm. research, right? Oh, like there is a lens and that sh shows certain issues, doesn't show others. So that perspective taking helps one uh, survey if you want, or if you're working on a project, you often get different people representing different perspectives. But that allows one to, to get a little deeper into the, the perspectives that are contributing to an issue. Uh, uh, after 
if you want to, if you develop that, you can also start thinking about this finding common ground. And finding common ground doesn't mean, again, a merger of or a sort of a summation of all the things that have been found. Some of the common ground might be around the need to reframe an issue so that there is common mm -hmm. ground. Or, um, and um, by working in, in um, sort of iteratively and trying to, to be reflexive about the different perspectives that are present, you can start to find some space of, of mm -hmm. shared interest or um, of shared methodologies, for example. Uh, and the fourth um, the disciplinary, the interdisciplinary uh, competence that we work on in that course is uh, around integration. So knowledge integration, is, if you want, is a bit the holy grail of uh, interdisciplinary research. You're trying to integrate knowledge from mm -hmm. different disciplines. Mm -hmm. But it's, it takes quite a while to get there. And uh, I think too often people sort of skip the, the other competences and they try to go directly to knowledge integration. Mm -hmm. I've, I, for certain, have been guilty of that in the past. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there are ma materials like that that speak a little bit about the prerequisites that one should develop to, to get to the point that they feel comfortable doing interdisciplinary research. Uh, and of course, this uh, tool from Utrecht is, is one of many, mm -hmm. um, there are there are entire entire websites and platforms dedicated to knowledge integration, and there is uh, proposals of that you know knowledge integration itself should become a discipline, uh, and mm -hmm. people could kind of become educated in being integrators or implementers and so forth. Um, so there is a really rich tradition of thinking about those competences and spaces and, and what is necessary uh, to do. Uh, I do find, uh, I think, perhaps a, a difficulty in, in some of the interdisciplinary settings that we're in is that it's almost taken for granted that we know how to do interdisciplinarity, mm -hmm. that we know how to do transdisciplinarity, and there isn't as much attention to the training in the process, uh, in the sensibilities, if you want, that you need to, to operate mm -hmm. in that space as you would have for a more traditional discipline. Uh, and I, I think that is a, a major loss. But I also see signs of that changing. For example, in the NAST uh, network, uh, there is now a PhD school that, that also offers quite a lot of preparation in terms of uh, thinking more seriously about methodology, integration, and so forth. back to uh, your piece because you asked some of a, le a lot of uh, uh, key questions so maybe I can <laughs> throw some of them back to you a uh, few that really caught my eye so for example you have these reflexive questions that people should ask uh, themselves how may we resignify belonging more inclusively and less territorially or defensively what if we looked at the various sedimentary and reactive interactions meanings and bonds a burst Fourth, when we participate with others instead of extending and deepening roots into the land. Yeah. Yeah, so to just take a, a little step back that might help um, ground this conversation. Um, part of what I was trying to do in this piece is to um, open up a different set of questions that we can use to reflect and, and live with uh, around belonging. And the reason for that is that I think we're saturated of, about conversations of belonging, but they're often a little binary and a little uh, limiting in that we often talk about, do you belong here or not? Where do you belong? Mm -hmm. Where is your home? 
where do you come from? And these questions, they all have Im embedded in them a very strong territoriality. They, they have an, an assumption that there is a place somewhere that you belong to, uh, and if you don't, you should, and you should find that place uh, somehow, uh, and you should go back. You should go back to your place. You should go back home if you if you happen to be a foreigner in a place that is becoming less friendly to foreigners. Um, but I was trying to to create a little bit more spaciousness uh, and recognize that belonging is a kind of deep human concern. And I'm not original in saying that. You know, it's one of the biggest concerns in psychology. People talk a lot about it. Uh, but that we find very different ways of articulating for ourselves or of making it work, of constructing a sense of belonging. Uh, and in, in recognizing that there are different ways of going about it, could it be that there's also uh, possibilities that are more inclusive than others, that are more uh, um, less dependent on things that only the privileged would have, for example, mm -hmm. right? So. Uh, to give the example of uh, go back home. It assumes that everyone has this home waiting for them somewhere mm -hmm. that has been really uh, you know, safe and, and loving for them. Like, mm -hmm. I happen to have uh, loving parents that would welcome me home if I were to go back to their place, but uh, that, is, that is very specific to my story, but it's not something that is widely available for, for, for many people. So when we start having these societal conversations around belonging, but that they embed certain notions that are very constrictive about what is possible and what is real belonging, uh, we, we exclude by definition. Uh, and I was trying to give myself, in a way, authorization to, to be more, uh, to hold uh, some of these ideas about belonging less tightly and to, to try and think of other ways that I might belong, that, that I might already belong. Uh, something I noticed recently, uh, and I've, I've been doing some, some work with that, is that oftentimes when we uh, think of ourselves in ways that are about improving, like I want to improve how I belong here, what we inadvertently do is that we increase our sense of deficiency, our sense of everything that is lacking, all the things that I don't have here. So. I could do that about living in the Netherlands and I would recognize well, my Dutch is not as great and I don't have a, a passport and I don't have this and I don't have that. And, yeah. and I would end that conversation feeling despondent, feeling unable to, to be present, to, to, to connect. To, I would be feeling more alienated than, than from the onset. Mm -hmm. And instead, uh, I think there is a richness of, of thinking about these other possibilities. What, in what ways could I belong here? Or how might I mm -hmm. construct my belonging in this place? And that is a, a slightly different angle into the question, but that creates all sorts of different affordances, different possibilities uh, for ourselves, but also for others, right? So if we see belonging as something that is more proactively constructed, that is about how I relate to others, it means that we can start uh, helping others belong, and in doing that, uh, we will find ourselves being a part of a meaningful community and support. Yeah, I think you would expect uh, from a post-modernist uh, point of view that uh, people would uh, embra embrace the idea of everything is, well, of social constructedness, of uh, especially your identity. But then this, this, uh, there's this um, uh, idea of belonging to a, to a land. This really strongly is, yeah. is pervasive for some reason. 
Yeah, of course. And, and I think if, if we were to look back at the history of humanity, we're living in a very specific moment in time where the possibilities for someone to construct a life like I did, living in, you know, uh, eight different cities in the past mm -hmm. 15 years and so forth, um, there is a kind of a certain degree, it's not entirely novel, but there is a certain degree of novelty of just how many people can access that. Mm. Um, but e even then, if we were to look back, and I, and I try to do that in the piece, is like, like humans didn't get to occupy all different continents and, and whatnot by just staying home. Mm. So there is a history of migration that is also part of our, of our humanity, right? And uh, the same with, uh, you know, coming from a Latin American country, so this is very obvious. Like, mm. you, you, would see, you would sit in the classroom and every surname comes from a different place. Mm. So you would, in my, in, my, uh, in my high school, you would have everything from Ukrainian, Polish, deeply Brazilian, my surname is Belgian. Like, mm. there is a diversity that is already present. So when we, when we take seriously to look at how these things are constructed, in different places by different people, you see that there is a lot more mm -hmm. variety. Mm -hmm. uh, I did receive a comment I thought was very thoughtful uh, in LinkedIn about someone who had a different experience than mine, who had, you know, grown up their entire life uh, in a, in a sort of 20 miles away from where they were born and things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was interesting because they were discussing the the kind of the pros and cons or, or the, the the gains and the pains of, of having that way of belonging. And you could notice that um, it wasn't it wasn't pain free. You know, there was mm -hmm. some certain difficulties. For example, uh, kind of a longing for the freedom of being able to reinvent yourself somewhere mm -hmm. else, which is something that I've exercised ex excessively, <laughs> uh, right? So, but it's to recognize that there is these different ways, and that there isn't just the right way that everyone should be doing mm -hmm. it. Unless you have exactly that, you're kind of mm -hmm. somehow a broken human being. Uh, because I think that is really uh, uh, problematic, especially at the time where we start, you know, where there is a, a kind of whiff of uh, xenophobia uh, around in the air, right? So if the, 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 only, the people that really belong are only the ones that have a strong connection to the land, you could go down the line of that argument and you see some pretty nasty uh, mm -hmm. ideas uh, com coming up, right, of, of thinking... Uh, that that is the only right way, that those that are not are invaders or somehow. The moment you, and, and that's something I touch as well in the piece, is that belonging also has the connotation of possession, right? So when you think about home, where is my home? This home belongs to me. If you want to belong there too, do we enter into conflict? Mm -hmm. So uh, that's what I mean by thinking about some other uh, ways of approaching the question of belonging that, that are not premised on those solely on those uh, metaphors and, and ways of thinking, right? And I see more and more belonging as uh, quite distributed in the sense that, that mm -hmm. you probably belong to, to an academic community or you belong to, you know, uh, a place or a history or uh, a family and your partner might have a different sort of uh, way of, of thinking about their mm -hmm. belonging. Um, so, so th that I find it is a richer and more granular discussion. Yeah, you use you you use the uh, metaphor of nesting birds uh, versus old grown trees, right? Yeah, 
Yeah, exactly. I, I'm, I've been working on a project. It's a small seed-funded project that, that explores um, the role of metaphors in helping us think about collaborations. Mm -hmm. uh, and for me, the key takeaway from this project has been just recognizing the power of playing with mm -hmm. a variety of metaphors, not taking for granted that we should choose one and be like, this is the metaphor, right? Mm -hmm. Like, where do you have roots? Like, if you have roots, it suggests that they're fixed, it suggests that they are, you know, they grow slowly, <laughs> it suggests that they require, like, soil and so forth. Uh, so if you add, juxtapose that metaphor with another metaphor, like, you know, a nest where for a nest? bird, yeah. you, you end up getting yeah. uh, a different sense. Like, where do I feel comfortable? Where, where is it safe? Uh, it's less about the fixity to the land and it's more about the safety, the the, uh, the protection, the the place from which I can, you know, grow my off offspring, for example. So what to do with this, uh, uh, for yourself, with this um, realization? Yeah, so I, I think I would suggest to, to become curious and sensitive to some of the, the ways we, to use a fancy term, like our languaging these things, right? Like mm -hmm. we are imposing a certain language and a certain set of metaphors mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. assumptions. Uh, and oftentimes we stop at that level and we don't excavate a little bit what is underneath, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, do you belong or not? Like, oh wait, what do we mean by belonging? Mm -hmm. uh, and if we if we think about it, do, do we carry, like w what, what are we carrying, bringing into this conversation? Mm -hmm. Uh, and what does that do to the thing we're trying to talk about? Uh, it's the same, in a way, it's a similar issue to what we started with, like transitions, transformations, do you just choose them randomly? No, like you need to be attentive, where this, this is coming from? Uh, and that, if you want, the, the, the bottom line is, is a very old uh, phrase, but it's this idea of like, what does it mean to live an examined life, mm -hmm. right? What does it mean to, examine the terms and the, the ways we think about our life a little philosophically, but, but also in terms of practices, right? Like if, if I think of belonging as X, Y, and Z, what does that do for how I practice my day-to-day, -day, how I practice mm -hmm. my participation in different communities? Uh, someone that believes belonging is all about a home uh, and a land might be the kind of person that wants to buy a farm and you know move move to to the rural to kind of reconstruct an idealized version of belonging. But what happens if they get there and they find themselves miserable, right? What, what happens if that assumption that this is how I belong doesn't quite pan out? Um, so it's a kind of more ongoing process of of uh, playing with, living, trying different things. Uh, and that's why I emphasize, rather than trying to answer these questions in a like f definitive way, what it would be like to treat some of these questions as sort of lingering, like to, to live mm -hmm. with these questions, uh, to, to stay with them in such a way that one day we might feel like, oh, I found this question. Uh, and I, I think that most academic research has has an element of that. So mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's not surprising that I'm writing this piece because in, in academia, we are often trying to formulate questions for which we don't have answers, and it's a pity if we're only asking very obvious research questions, right? Like we, we're almost like grasping with with some questions that are a little more ineffable, a little more uh, difficult to to 
pin down. Another question that you had, what if resignifying belonging goes hand in hand with mobilizing either evolutionary efforts or revolutionary efforts? And what if our fiction and imagination shifted from science to kinship? So this idea of kinship and you uh, yeah, talk about kinfi. Yeah. Can you say a bit more about that? Yeah, so I'm part of a, a book club that reads a lot of uh, sci-fi, cli-fi and speculative fiction. Cli-fi is climate fiction. Climate fiction, yeah. Uh, and we, we meet about once a month, and it's been a, a really joyous ride. Uh, and I, I think a lot of the pieces that we wrote, that we read uh, together, uh, spoke to a need to rethink not only the technologies or the <coughs> institutional setup of society, but actually the ways people relate. Uh, and there is a long tradition in that, so I don't think it's necessarily. Uh, it's not that this idea is entirely novel. I think it's, it's more to, to draw, draw attention to the ways in which we might need novel ways of relating. Um, and uh, a, lot of, a lot of novels have that element. Uh, I, just over Christmas, I was reading a novel called Hopeland, which I, I highly recommend. Uh, and it's a, it's a beautiful, sort of fantastic uh, climate-informed climate novel, but so much of the book's kind of key interests are about how people relate mm. and how those relations create um, the possibility of responding better to climate change. Mm. Uh, so uh, I think that interest on the, on the, on the nitty-gritty of the social, the, the relating is something that is really important and is perhaps missing in a lot of the conversations about traditional innovation, traditional even transition studies. If you think about, for example, so social innovation, there is a lot more emphasis on new ways of, of being and organizing um, that, that open up. So there are academic communities that are already more attuned to some of these questions. Uh, but I think in terms, in personal terms, um, we, can, we can find ways of belonging that, like if we treat belonging not as a, as a given, like this is how it works, but as a question that we're living, that we're trying to, to grapple with. Mm. Uh, there might be ways of orienting ourselves that create different possibilities with people. Uh, for example, I do think it's a task for, for men of our age to, to think about how do we relate to our partners in non-patriarchal ways, right? And, and how does that help us belong in that relationship? Um, or to, to think of like what is our role as men in child rearing and uh, how do we create relationships of care that are not just, you know, handing the baby over to, to the mother so, so we go back to academic work. Like these questions, they're, they're uh, deeply rewarding in terms of belonging, to engage with them, mm -hmm. but also they, they have some of the elements of the kinds of changes that we're talking about in society that, that are necessary. Uh, so there's a kind of a praxis of the everyday, uh, like a, a way of, uh, embodying in the day-to-day -day some of the, this academic questions that we're finding. Uh, and I've become, yeah, over this, this recent period, very interested in that interface, right? Of what does it mean to live in a way that is more conducive to uh, not only sustainability, but 
others belonging to it so far. Yeah, I, I did uh, note several uh, of the novels that you uh, recommended. So yes, good. Thank you for that. Um, maybe uh, to going uh, closer to the maybe to the conclusion. I want to ask you. You mentioned you're a member of a book club. Book club. Um, uh, in your non-academic writing, what are the themes that you are um, exploring, yeah. and do they align with uh, your academic uh, writing? Yeah. So uh, both these pieces uh, that we're, we've been discussing on belonging and identity, it almost felt like I couldn't write. I couldn't not write them. So it wasn't like a decision, it wasn't so, especially the first, it just felt like it was coming out of me and I, I had to just let it go. Like the I first one was on belonging, on the belonging. second one on identity. Second one on identity. The one on identities, I, I felt I was reading a li writing a little bit more because I had raised some questions and it felt like it, it made sense. It was a more rational decision to, to write it. Well, the first one, it felt really more like a, a deep expression that I just had to get it out. Yeah. And um, so, so they have a different tenor, I think, from academic practice in that there is still like a, this professional concern, you know, like you're, there is a, a peer reviews, like this was published in, intentionally in a non-academic environment so that I could get, um, yeah, kind of conversations going in. And that, that was the most rewarding part of it. Uh, funnily enough, I, I did share with a colleague and... Uh, Tim, if you're hearing it, uh, uh, who who was wearing his uh, academic hat when he, he read it, um, and so he was he was, you know, criticizing in a way the lack of precision or the mm -hmm. lack of like, what is this like? What are you trying to say? Mm -hmm. um, and it was interesting because he he uh, reread the piece a little later without that academic hat. And he realized, in a way, like, oh, this is what he was trying to do. He wasn't trying to give answers or to tell us how to feel about something. Um, and I think that is uh, perhaps something that I've, I wish I had known before, mm -hmm. is that doing this kind of non-academic writing uh, creates a space to think differently in ways that can be really enriching in, in their own right, not because they're going to be instrumental or because they are going to be like a way to test ideas and then you're going to use them. The non-instrumentality of it is really uh, endearing. Like doing that work uh, feels energizing. You can hear it in my voice even mm -hmm. it's, if it's failing. Um, and I think acad uh, academia sometimes can feel very dry. Mm -hmm. um, if you're only if all the words that you write are going to be seen by a peer reviewer and they're going to be, uh, you know, scrutinized and so on and so forth, that, that conditions our thinking mm -hmm. a little bit. Mm -hmm. I find it really intriguing, for example, the very word discipline that we've been kind of going around. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a little phrase from a book about interdisciplinarity that talks, discipline, uh, disciplines, discipline disciples, right? Mm -hmm. so disciplines the disciples. Yeah, so it's it's about the disciplining work that they do, uh, and I think the, the the academic writing is a is a key space in which that disciplining happens. Mm -hmm. So can we find ways to have other spaces of more undisciplined thought that allow us for more creativity and synthesis and generativity, and uh, that are not um, 
obeying the same standards. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I have a good friend, for example, from a colleague, uh, Jos Verbort, who has been writing a, a beautiful series of blogs uh, that are super uh, intriguing, and they have gradually been changing how he perceives his own work because he mm-hmm. had the space to articulate it. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. like if 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 writing is thinking. Writing academically is just one way of thinking, and writing non-academically might be a very complementary or, uh, you know, inherently necessary form of, of self-expression. Yeah. So in my first career, I was a, uh, a written press journalist, so mm-hmm. working on, on economics and, and so on. But definitely, the um, the four I had to uh, joining academia was was a really indeed a disciplining experience to. To, to learn it, uh, the, the writing style and it's really formulaic as you said uh, or maybe you didn't but it is <laughs> yeah. it it does serve its purpose because you exp- everything is expected uh, in the places where you expect when you read a, a standard paper a publication uh, and it's not uh, uh, it's diff- different in other points uh, in other uh, styles so non-academic styles and I think you mentioned uh, uh, at one point if maybe you conversation we had evocative uh, academic writing is something that is uh yeah yeah it's it's uh indeed different again it's another thing that differs by academic community or discipline um but i do find uh, in innovation studies and transition studies there is almost um, a very formulaic style that has become standard uh it is on the one hand helpful for certain things you know where where to find things in a paper you know how Mm. uh, what is being said and what not Uh, but I think there's also something lost in not letting the author uh, elaborate more and and specify and try different words and and be more experimental with their thinking Uh, it's almost as if you're you're only writing the things that you're absolutely certain about Mm -hmm. Uh, but oftentimes the gray areas, the areas that we're kind of a little uncertain about, might be the ones that are most significant for for other academics, right? Mm. Um, and even in terms of editorials, in terms of um, there is a kind of a there isn't much flavor, there isn't much color to mm. how academic writing in in transition studies is currently done. You know, I, and I'm I'm guilty of that. As I was doing my PhD, I didn't quite know how to do that either and it's it's kind of a practice that takes much longer uh, it's also a very international environment where many of us are learn you know learning English as we go mm-hmm. and, and having to to find ways to to make the work the language work for their purpose so I'm not surprised that that's the case uh, but I, I do think there is a loss and I think other areas have a little bit more of that flavor mm-hmm. the flair uh, color in in their writing uh, if you think about STS, for example, there's a lot of that. Uh, so, so there is other possibilities uh, in different fields, uh, and I and I do I don't think there's been a, a kind of reflection on on transition studies about what it does to write so dryly. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, if you if you follow other authors that are writing about environmental issues, they often are able to write pieces that are deeply moving. Like you, you read them and it's hard not to feel moved by them, mm. and they end up having considerable impact in in the societal conversation as a result because they are they're moving people. Their their pieces have a quality to them, and that's not to say that they shouldn't be you know grounded in evidence or they shouldn't 
be um, thoughtful and, and all the qu like quality criteria of academic uh, thinking. Uh, but we almost threw the baby with the bathwater when it comes to, to style, in a sense. Uh, can you recall any names that you of the authors who are? I think a good example of authors that write, uh, whose writing is quite distinctive. Uh, I mentioned Andy Sterling, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, his articles are not ones that you would read quickly. Mm -hmm. They require a lot of work, mm -hmm. but there is a depth of precision and insight in the choices of the language itself that go into writing that, uh, that add entire new dimensions to the work, that change how you perceive the world uh, because the writing is so evocative. Um, and I think, you know, it's not for everyone's taste, but uh, that, that for me is a, a very good example of mm -hmm. someone who, who writes beautifully. Uh, and there is a, another researcher that I find always very inspiring. She works more on, on design, but she worked a lot on infrastructures and urban transitions and whatnot. Um, her, her name is uh, Shannon Mattern, mm -hmm. um, and her writing is also deeply uh, thoughtful and, and exploratory, and it's not just writing in a traditional journal style. I, I wish we had much more essays published in transitions, right? Like mm -hmm. It's almost like the editing industry, the, the, the academic publishing industry has eaten academia. <laughs> it's like all the other forms of ex academic expression are, are no longer valid because they don't count. Mm -hmm. uh, and and it's, it's a pity that we don't have more essays, that we don't have more uh, other forms of, of academic expression uh, that cover that. Shannon Mattern is a great example of more essay-like contributions that are super grounded in, in a, a depth of thinking, but do that yeah. differently. Especially in sustainability transitions where it is very much uh, sort of, uh, I think a lot of people who are in sustainability transitions are motivated by environmentalism and ideas of uh, protecting nature and so on. And, but they, you don't really see, you only see the, indeed the, the dryness of it in the, in the, in the standard papers. How, how have you been dealing with that? Uh, do, you, do you keep it dry or do you? I think in my PhD, I was very concerned with fitting in, and I think uh, in that way I probably repeated some of that. that like everybody probably. Yeah, and it's, um, I think it, you know, um, as a supervisor nowadays, I would be more encouraging of my students trying to develop and find their, their voice mm -hmm. as, as an author. Ah, so voice is one Yeah, way. that could be one yeah. way to think about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, oftentimes we still see master students that are writing uh, uh, master theses and they've heard for the longest time that they're not allowed to use first person mm -hmm. uh, in their writing, even though they're writing pieces that are about reflexivity, mm -hmm. they have a kind of a very specific situated observational sort of standpoint. Mm -hmm. um, so why not uh, the sort of train, train our students already to, to be able to discuss their positionality more clearly and so forth. Um, so I think there's a lot to be done in that space. Uh, I'm not sure I'm necessarily the, the, the one to lead that charge and I'm mm -hmm. not uh, by any means a you know, academic uh, uh, literary genius in that sense. Mm -hmm. um, but um, there's some definitely scope for change. Mm -hmm.
because of the topics we touched on, I, I just wanted to highlight this idea that um, it's very easy for someone, for example, in a PhD position to feel very at odds and uh, feel like an outsider, feel like they don't belong uh, in academic circles uh, or they don't belong to a particular discipline because they come from a different background and so forth. Uh, and one thing that I've come to realize uh, a long time ago has is just how widespread that feeling is. So that the reason uh, me and, and other friends uh, came together to kind of co-create the beginnings of PhDs and transitions that then became the NAST network mm -hmm. for early career researchers was because there was this recognition that we all felt a bit out of place. We did. We all felt like there wasn't. So the more we're able to to voice and to to name that that sense of uh, awkwardness or out of placeness or whatever you want to call it, this unbelonging, the more we're able to find others that are in a similar situation and that we can kind of reach out to. Mm -hmm. um, and there is no reason, uh, like a, sometimes there is almost a, an assumption that in order to accomplish a PhD, you need to suffer in the way that people before you have suffered. And mm -hmm. unless you suffer the same way or more, mm -hmm. you're not... Um, allowed in to, to the temple of academia yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's it's a pity that we, we don't challenge that more often. Mm -hmm. So perhaps for you know other young uh, or early career researchers there, to not take for granted this unbelonging, to, to not just uh, ac accept that this is this is it and you just need to bite the bitter pill and, and keep on going or you know, bite your upper lip, as they would say it in the UK. But there is a possibility of, of reaching out, finding others, finding groups that you feel deeply belonging with. And, uh, sometimes they might be in academia, and other times they will be outside, like uh, a book club, for example. Um, and I think that isolation, the, the feeling of uh, alienation that can, can come with, with this uh, issue I'm describing, uh, is perhaps a, a main reason why a lot of a lot of uh, students and, and researchers find that they are unable to finish a mm. PhD because they've internalized uh, that in order to do a PhD they need to isolate themselves and in doing so they find themselves you know depressed unwell and so forth so so perhaps there is a, a potential to to challenge a little bit that um, uh, sort of internalizing of the need to suffer in a very specific way. Uh, it doesn't. You don't get better grades in your defense if you suffered more than other people. <laughs> so this, I guess, what you what you can do in a nest. This is what you can get trained, or at least exposed to these kind of failures. Yeah, so, so things like going to conferences, participating in a place like nest, mm. or, or organizing things, uh, in creating spaces for others, uh, being part of a reading club, writing together with others. Uh, I recently, with, with friends, um, created something like a, it's like, it started as a coaching circle where we would just meet from time to time. Every month we would meet for an hour mm. and we would sort of see how everyone was doing, two other, two other friends in the same field. Um, and we would support each other. And mm. we ended up writing a paper together 
because it was the ideas that we were discussing were just fascinating for everyone that was mm -hmm. part of it. But it, it didn't start as a paper and it didn't end as a paper. The paper was a natural outcome of the conversations that were happening. Mm -hmm. So there was this rich sort of friend, friendship brewing mm -hmm. in parallel to work that was supporting the work that was making the work more meaningful, deeper, and so forth. Relating has unintended consequences, some of which can be papers, you know. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think it's a pity that we still have a lot of structures in academia that emphasize the idea that you need to be go at it alone. Mm -hmm. Unless you go at it alone, it's not valid. And, um, so there is, there is definitely many ways that people can find meaningful connections and uh, to, to, to see them as potentially conducive to, to, mm -hmm. to the work. Fantastic. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jonas. Thank We've you. covered a lot of things, uh, but mainly we, we stayed around the topic of belonging in academia, uh, in transitions, in, in the country that you're in, and how to do that uh, in the group that you work in. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much for coming. Uh, let's uh, hope you come again sometime soon. Thank you so much. Good luck with the podcast. I hope it will blow up. Okay. <laughs>